today on Ag News Daily. Trying to make sure that the best and most recent science that's out there is reflected, but it's also reflected accurately. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Mike Pearson. Mike, it might not feel like Friday to some folks sitting at home having to abide by social distancing, but there are still some positive things to talk about, including today's interview with Dr. Gene Loney of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. Excellent, and I'm really sad I missed being a part of that interview, Delaney. What are we going to talk about? Well, she is really fired up. She didn't grow up in ag and it's just really neat to see somebody come into ag at a young age, but, you know, spend their lifetime working in this industry. And she's going to share with us some of the bright spots as far as agriculture is concerned when it looks at our environmental footprint. Fantastic, folks. Stay tuned for that. When we think about our footprint, Delaney, I don't know. I was going to segue, but I can't make this segue. <laughs> we had an announcement earlier today. has nothing to do with footprints. Uh, market footprints, I guess, is the segue. Um, basically, every exchange got together early today. There has been talk from Steven Mnuchin and uh, a lot of folks in the administration and just a lot of folks out in the general public that the extreme volatility we have seen this week. We've seen it in the equity markets. We've certainly seen it in agriculture, in the cattle markets, and, and in pretty much everything else. Folks have been calling for the markets to either shut down or reduce their trading days or do something. And a statement issued today by, listen to this group of people, the American Bankers Association, the CBOE, Chicago Board of Options Exchange, NASDAQ, CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and the Institute of International Finance and the International Swaps and Derivatives Association came together, and they all said that it is vital to keep U.S. markets open. And these are the Hmm. folks that control all of the markets. They said, quote, keeping all U.S. financial markets open is essential to the well-being of the general economy and vital to maintaining and bolstering investor confidence, particularly once the economy recovers from the effects of this pandemic. So I guess, listeners, unless it comes from on high from the Trump administration, don't be expecting any changes to trading schedules. And I think we can expect this volatility to continue. Yes, I think that you're right. But one positive piece of news that we had for today, Mike, was the Chinese stepping in because of this volatility. They reported multiple export sales including a really big purchase, about 750,000 metric tons of U.S. corn and about 340,000 metric tons of hard red winter wheat. This is, we've talked about this before. The Chinese are now stepping in because they've seen such volatile U.S. markets and seen prices really take a hit here over the past couple weeks. Absolutely. And this is one of those things we talked a lot back in January about how China wrote into this agreement that they wanted to be able to buy when market conditions warranted. Mm -hmm. And that is right now. China loves a good deal. They're getting this good deal. But Delaney, this is setting up a different issue. And this is one I know we've talked with Ted Seifert about here on the show. Their target is a dollar figure, not a total tonnage of commodities. So if they're buying cheap commodities, They've got to buy a lot more of them if they're going to hit their 40 billion target. That is a very, very good point to make. But I wanted to just give a quick update here. I thought this was also worth mentioning. When you look at export sales data, we are seeing U.S. all wheat sales running about 4% ahead of where we were this time a year ago. And shipments are up about 10%. 
U.S. corn sales are still running pretty drastically behind where we were this time of year, about 30% behind, as well as soybeans are running about 15% behind. So we really need to see Chinese step in, and not only that, but actually get these grains off U.S. shores into cargo ships to heading to China. Absolutely. And the reason I think we might see that take a little longer than those of us in agriculture would like is, you know, we talk a lot about the U.S. dollar, the strength of the dollar. And the dollar has been on fire, ripping to the upside over this past week. Just, oh gosh, let me pull my chart up here. Just, oh golly gosh, back on March 20th. No, that's today, right? That's today. (laughs) Okay, I was going to say, well, we traded in a huge range today. Am I looking at my chart right? This is crazy. Anyway, whatever it was, back on the 6th, here we go. On the 9th of March, the dollar index was at 95 points. Today, we're at 102. We're over par. So basically, what this means is that for foreign buyers to buy any American agricultural products, they've got to spend up a little bit more. And that could make export shipments tough, the one exception being China, who has a political reason to buy. The question is, will we hold them to it? And I think that remains to be seen. I think that does remain to be seen. You're absolutely right there, Mike. But focusing our attention back on domestic markets, there has been one positive thing amongst all this COVID-19 mass confusion and uh, hysteria, and that's meat sales here in the United States. We had another report put together again by the 210 Analytics Anne-Marie Rohrink that we had on the podcast last week in combination with the National Association of Meat Institute otherwise known as NAMI, and they did a study here based off the last 12 weeks, the last four weeks, and the last week ending in March 8th. And what they've shown, and I shared this in our weekly newsletter today, so folks, we shared that on Facebook and Twitter. If you haven't seen it, you can check it out for yourself, this graph in particular, but explosive meat markets here domestically, Mike. They're seeing accelerated protein purchases, And I mean, I'm sure for some of you that have been going to the grocery store to pick up your latest groceries have seen meat shelves that are just empty or near empty with maybe some of the less quality proteins still sitting on the shelf. But they've said that meat sales are accelerating so quickly. We saw that meat sales increased as much as 9% over just the last week, March 8th alone. Holy cow. You know, it's interesting. We were talking here in the office with uh, another one of our brokers, Joe Nacruto, who we need to have on the podcast, actually. We'll get Joe on here one of these days for a Market Monday. But he was talking about a, a friend of his that works at, <clears throat> was it Kroger, Joe? Kroger, a supermarket chain. And uh, they were saying that they're no longer putting prices on the meat. It's moving so quickly. They're just wow. calling it meat and throwing it in the case. And this is something that has been driving conversations in the meat industry for the past, well, week and a half now. Everyone expected the price of of meat to come down a little bit as restaurants quit buying, but the consumer has stepped up. And like you say, it's incredible that it climbed that much just in the past week. Yeah, really, really explosive meat markets. I think the other thing that's worth noting is that You know, we've seen consumers, and again, it's a small percentage of the population that say they're willing to try alternative proteins like plant-based meats because of respect for the environment. But then in times of hysteria like this, we see them reverting back to the basics, picking meat up at the counters, avoiding some of those plant-based proteins. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Delaney. I have seen a lot of pictures floating around Twitter. And granted, I've got a bias, folks. I raised cattle. And Delaney, I know that's your bias as well. But uh, 
a lot of meat cases with the alternative proteins untouched while the beef, Mm -hmm. pork, poultry is all gone. Yeah, interestingly enough. Yes, indeed. Well, I've got one other quick story here, and this is something that uh, we've had a couple conversations in the office. Today, when we look at the markets, we had wheat and soybeans up. We had cattle much higher. We had uh, both feeders and fat cattle much higher. The sentiment was to the upside today, and yet corn was down $2.75. Had a lot of questions about why, and the answer, I believe, lies in this statistic right here. Oil prices fell sharply today. U.S. crude is on track for its biggest weekly percentage decline since the Gulf War in 1991. Wow. Basically, everybody is concerned. You know, I look out my window here in downtown Chicago, and there's like eight cars driving around. People just aren't burning any fuel, and that is hurting the crude oil industry. And importantly for American agriculture, it's hurting ethanol. And I think this is going to have some ripple effects. If you're a cattle feeder and you've been relying on DDGs or, or you know, modifieds or wet gluten or something from an ethanol plant, you might have to start looking for alternatives. Uh, we were talking to a producer out in Indiana earlier today, and all of the ethanol plants around him have shut down. They're just going into maintenance. They're, they're closing up until margins start to look a little better. So, folks, this is a, a real deal. This is going to hit rural America pretty hard. Yeah, you're spot on there, Mike. We've actually seen the Renewable Fuels Association, as well as several other groups, ask Congress in a letter to provide some credit to pay workers, suspend suspend business taxes, essentially receive a bailout. That's part of that $1 trillion economic stimulus package. But a lot of folks are going to be faced with that decision, whether or not to shut down plants or idle production for the time being. But looking at that stimulus package in particular, I thought this was interesting because there's been lots of rumors and trickles about will I receive some money from the government as part of this economic stimulus package? And it appears that folks who make less than $75,000 of income are packaged are are promised as part of the package $1,200 per person payments. But, Delaney, for people like you and I who have very volatile incomes based Mm -hmm. on whatever we've got going on, how are they calculating it? I don't know. That's a good question. I assume that's my assumption because I was looking at that and thinking it's got to be based off of your taxes because this year's taxes, I believe, I don't know. They've been extended. They have to like July 15th. Is that right? Both filing and paying have both been extended. The filing was announced earlier today. You could pay your taxes 90 days later. That was announced a couple days ago. But right, so we're not going to have that data. So, I mean, if your income is – so I guess I'm trying not to freak out quite yet. But, uh, you know, I hope they find a way to accommodate people whose incomes have changed a lot in the past year. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's $1,200 regardless of what you made as long as it was less than $75,000. Right. Right. Well, I tell you what, uh, should we jump into the markets, Delaney? We should, but I have just one other thing to consider as well. Unfortunately, I'm sorry I've got to talk about this. We've been continuing to talk about this, but as we continue to see wet weather across much of the Midwest, I was even talking to a friend who has snow in northwest Iowa, which is crazy to think here in the middle of March, but... The National Weather Service is predicting another wet year this spring. They're predicting widespread flooding. However, they don't expect conditions to be quite as severe as last year. They said about one-third of the country will experience some level of flooding over this spring, and they're continuing to monitor the weather patterns and weather systems coming about this spring, but really expecting the central and southeast portions of the United States 
to have most of that flooding and ongoing rainfall as we Ugh. head into planting season. I know. I'm sorry to do it, but I just want folks aware. Absolutely. I mean, this is the kind of thing that as folks are making their planting decisions, you got to know this kind of stuff. And I'm glad, Delaney, that you were on top of that for today's podcast. Absolutely. We are always on top of the market. Should we jump into those? Let's do it. All right, folks, and we had a volatile day today in the market, as I mentioned earlier. Let's start with the corn market. May corn, I was wrong earlier, May corn closed down one and three quarter cents to finish at three forty three and three quarters. The December new crop was unchanged on the day at three sixty three and a quarter. Looking over at soybeans, the May contract up nineteen and a quarter cents, closing the day at eight sixty two and a half. November new crop up twelve and a quarter to finish at eight sixty and three quarters. Chicago wheat also moved to the upside. The May contract up four and a quarter cents to finish at five thirty nine and a quarter. December up two and a half, finishing the day at five forty six and three quarters. As I mentioned, cattle were higher on the day. The April live cattle contract was up three dollars and fifty five cents. Remember they were trading expanded limits today. Closed at ninety eight sixty five. The June contract was up sixty cents, finishing the day at eighty nine fifty two fifty. Looking over at feeder cattle, they took advantage of their expanded limits. The April contract was up four dollars seventy cents, closing at one eighteen eighty two fifty. May feeders up five dollars twenty two and a half cents, closing the day at one eighteen twenty five. Looking over at lean hogs, we had a mixed trade in the hog complex. The May contract was up eighty seven half at sixty eighty seven fifty. The June down one uh, excuse me uh, excuse me down a dollar twenty to close the day at sixty seven ninety five jumping over to the world of dairy in class three milk mixed trade the mark was down a penny at sixteen twenty six while the April was up seven cents to close the day at sixteen oh eight without further ado let's kick it over to Dr Gene Loney. Well, we are joined for today's Friday episode by Dr. Gene Loney, the Director of Farmer and Rancher Engagement for the U.S. Farmers Ranchers Alliance. Dr. Loney, thanks so much for joining today. Delaney, it is fantastic to be here, and I really appreciate it. It's also nice to get a boost of Friday for me as well this morning. Absolutely, because there are a lot of things to be excited about when you look at the world of agriculture and what we're doing to address our environmental footprint. And we're going to get to that here in just a moment. But Jean, before we do, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to work with the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. Absolutely. Um, Delaney, I have to admit, I actually uh, grew up in the city of Philadelphia, and a lot of people are surprised by that because my my entire life from the age of about 13 on has been in agriculture, and that's through a a beautiful blue corduroy jacket I got to put on at a young age and and really changed the trajectory of my life. And I've worked uh, in the public and private sectors. I've worked in the animal health side and, and had the privilege of serving in state government at the Department of Agriculture in my home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, but today, I actually live uh, just outside of Austin, Texas, and getting to know a whole different type of agriculture here in the Lone Star State. But my background really is is in communications and outreach with a focus on agricultural extension and education. And, and for me, One of the things that I am the most passionate about is how incredible this agriculture industry is and the opportunities it gives to so many people. I'm I'm the perfect example. I grew up in Philadelphia, but I've had this incredible career in agriculture. So I really love to talk about the positive stories of agriculture and showcase the amazing men, women, and families that are in this industry. And I'm one of six in the United States that's a Nuffield International Farming Scholar. So there's also this really robust network of global 
ag leaders who are not only innovating on the farms, on the ranches, in the forests, in the fisheries, in the greenhouses, but also stepping into leadership roles for the industry and for their communities. And I, and I think um, coming to join the USFRA team in January of 2020, I was really excited that part of their mission and vision is to inspire. It's to tell the positive story of what farms and ranches and farmers and ranchers do in our society. And, and this power of resiliency in agriculture's ecosystem services report from 2019 is a really great example of the positive things that our farms and ranches contribute to society as a whole, including on the environmental and natural resources side. Absolutely. I mean, farmers at the end of the day are definitely stewards of the land. And it's it's exciting that you guys were able to put together a report that highlights just that. So the report there, which is yeah. a little bit of a mouthful, is the power of resiliency in agriculture's <laughs> ecosystem services. A mouthful, but, but Jean, tell us a little bit about that report. What was the idea to put that together? Absolutely. And, and you're correct on the title. I, I, I think the hardest part of it was committing the title to memory. After that, everything was pretty exciting. But I think that the key in that is the power. It's power. And that's what we have in agriculture. Uh, this report is an outcome of the Ecosystem Services Science Advisory Council at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. So we have a couple of different councils where there are experts from the industry that come together to give us the benefit of their good thinking and experience. Um, and this group sat down and said, look, there is good science out there on agriculture and what we're doing at the farm and ranch level and how we're contributing positively to the ecosystem services. But it's not in one spot. It, it's all over the place. And sometimes the reports that are out there and that are focused on um, they tell a very different story, and in fact, in a lot of cases, they've sort of been debunked, and flaws in them have been pointed out, but they've gained traction. So the, the Science Advisory Council really wanted to say, look, let's pull together the best of this thinking. Let's find what's out there, and let's put it into one report so that we can talk about it together, and we can look at that collective picture of how agriculture is positively contributing and what we can do to contribute even more. And so that's the heart of the report that came out in 2019. And so when you say that they, it's a basically a compilation of other reports into one big report, where were you pulling some of those, you know, other research reports into this one from? Absolutely. That's, that's exactly what it is. So this is pulling some of the best references and, and resource materials out there together. And it's information that comes from uh, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. It's a lot of insight from American Farmland Trust. We've had leaders from the American Farm Bureau Federation involved in this. So we've pulled from academic research, things from UC Davis. We've pulled things from um, climate assessment groups. We've, we've pulled from global change research programs, um, and we've pulled from local universities and local farm bureaus and local organizations. So it really runs the gamut. Um, a big piece of this comes from USDA data. It really runs across the board in terms of trying to make sure that the best and most recent science that's out there is reflected, but it's also reflected accurately, that, that there isn't sort of a... Uh, there isn't necessarily an agenda or an, a lens to it. It's just pulling it together and showing what it looks like when you put everything together. I, I, the easiest way for me to understand the report is there were these packages of data that existed around the world. 
we built the quilt that pulls them all together in this report. That's a good good way to put it, a quilt to pull it all together. So digging into that a little bit more, tell us about what the data, what the science showed about agriculture and specifically our greenhouse gas or our environmental footprint, because that's such a hot topic to talk about right now. Absolutely. It's a huge topic. And, it, and it's one where quite candidly, agriculture gets beat up sometimes and um, that's not correct. And I think that's really frustrating for those of us in the industry who know that that's not accurate and that's not a reflection of, of what we do in the industry. Um, so this report, you know, the intention really was to, to bring positive, credible science together about the opportunities we have to reap the full potential of ag con um, contributions to the ecosystem solutions. And I think a big piece of that is how we can be a player in reducing greenhouse gas emissions by up to 40%. And when you look at what's happening, it's really quite startling when you look at the numbers. And I say startling in a great way. So agriculture, total U.S. ag greenhouse gas emissions is right now is 8.4%. So just under 9%. That's not always the number that's used. So first and foremost, we want to make sure that people are using the right number. So that is the agriculture contribution. We think that based on conservative numbers that are in this report, the science that's out there, in one to five years, it's practically achievable that we would decrease that 8.4% to 3.8%. So that's a 46% change in terms of what we can decrease. And that's by additional practices or additional acres being touched by cover crops, by no-till or conventional till, by shifting some production practices, and, and just by being a little bit more aggressive with what we already know and a lot of practices that producers are already doing. And if you take that a step, you know, sorry, go ahead. I, well, I was just going to say that's a, that's a really impressive number to think that we could cut it down by, you know, almost 50% here in the next five years by just doing some really simple things like cover crops and, yeah. and, um, no till and whatnot. But I mean, that's the practical application of it, but how likely is it that we see farmers turning to that if they're not forced to do so? Well, and that's, I think that's the heart of all of this. Um, and, and I think, for us at USFRA, the big thing is we don't want anybody forced to do it. We want them incentivized to do it. And for us, um, that's, that's incentivized in a number of different ways. And one of the big things that we talk about in this report and that USFRA talks about as an organization is there has to be co-investment in all of this. We really have to make sure that as, as this investment is happening in things like cover crops and things like precision manure application and precision spraying and precision agriculture, also frontier technologies like crop breeding or phenotyping for high carbon input root systems, things that are, that are ahead of you know, looking down the road, that's what could happen. This can't be done financially on the back of our producers. It, it just can't. And, and moreover, you know, spending the last few months talking to producers about sustainability, they also share, look, I want to adopt new practices, but if it's not going to pay off for three years, I can't afford to do that. So on our end, we're saying, look, this is practically achievable, but we have to find ways to support the farmers so that it's not on their backs financially. And, it, and it's not, if they're already having to do the work to implement it, we have to find ways to help support them. So we've got to find investment to come in. We've got to get people along the food chain to support it. We've got to have all hands on deck to realize 
agriculture can actually be the solution to this or a huge part of it, and it can become a carbon sink. You know, 45.5% of land in the continental U.S. is in farming and ranching. So rather than have a negative lens of, well, we've got to stop practices, turn that upside down and say, no, this is the sector that can make the biggest, most immediate impact. Let's invest in it and let's support them. And I mean, that all, like, not to be, uh, not to play devil's advocate too much, but that does sound like a (laughs) steep order to fill to find people that will work together with the farming community to invest in that type of greenhouse gas reduction or or environmental footprint Mm -hmm. reduction, essentially. So how are you guys going out there and and making those connections for agriculture? Yeah, it's it's a huge lift, quite honestly. You know, it's it's not a small task. Um, But what we're really trying to do is look at how we can spur transformative investment. By that, we mean there are a lot of of organizations out there that are looking to invest and specifically are looking to invest in areas related to greenhouse gases, related to climate, related to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which we don't talk about a lot in U.S. agriculture, but they are out there and they are shaping how we produce food around the world. So there, there are these venture capital firms, investment organizations, they're already doing that. We also have groups that are looking at how to invest in agriculture, but typically they wind up doing it at the far end. So you think about the boxed meal boom, all of the companies that came up that have these ideas of of how you can get meals delivered to your doorstep. So what we're trying to do is build relationships with organizations that have that funding to say, look, if you really want to address climate, if you really want to address greenhouse gases, if, if you really want to be at the source of where we can make the most positive impact, then you actually need to invest in conservation efforts. You actually need to invest in our farmers and ranches, ranchers and our farms and ranches. Pull it back a step along the value chain. Another thing that USFRA does, which I, I think is really, it was um, something I really admired and I thought was, was pretty brilliant, is they partner along the entire food system. So it's not just sitting and talking to producers, to farmers and ranchers. It's also talking to wholesalers, it's talking to, you know, input organizations, it's talking to folks that are serving our food products to customers. So it's saying, look, how do we how do we shorten the system in terms of intellectual knowledge, in terms of investment, in terms of partnership and co-creation so that everybody's involved and, and we get where we can best invest and make socially responsible, sustainably responsible decisions. Um, you know, you look at the food dollar in the United States and, and only 7% goes back to the producer. Now, there are a lot of people involved in taking food from the farmer ranch to the consumer, but we know we need more than that to help support the producers do more and do more sustainably. And, and I think that's a big key, particularly when you look at sustainably as being environmentally, sustainable, being socially sustainable. So with your people, with your communities, farms are a huge part of stable communities, but then also being profitable and prosperous. Because if if producers are doing all of this and they can't make a living at it, that's not really sustainable. Absolutely. I I agree with you there. Uh, Dr. Loney, before I let you go, we've been talking a lot about this report, but if our listeners would like to read through it themselves, is there a way that they can do that? Absolutely. Um, it is on the USFRA 
website, so we encourage everybody to go take a look. Um, there's also a great video on the website, 30 Harvests. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, check it out. Uh, it's a really great story about a farmer and, you know, just trying to make it work and figuring out what to do in, in uh, the challenge of some of these climate issues and greenhouse gas issues. Um, so please do take a look at it. We are always looking for folks to, that they're willing to step up and be an advocate and a champion for agriculture. Uh, we also have a fantastic ambassador team that folks can look at joining. So there really are a lot of different ways that people can take a look and, and figure out how to get connected with us. Uh, the Power of Resiliency in Agriculture's Ecosystem Services is on the website. Um, sometimes it's a little easier to Google a few of those keyword phrases, uh, but you also can find us at usfarmersandranchers.org. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Jean Loney of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, thank you so much for joining today. It was my pleasure, Delaney, and I hope you have a fantastic Friday. Well, again, a big thank you there to Dr. Loney. It's good to talk about something other than COVID-19 for today's interview, and we're going to continue discussing lots of things impacting agriculture, unfortunately, including COVID-19, as well as other stories. We're trying to keep things a little more light here on the podcast, Mike. I agree. Uh, we all looking. We're we all we're all looking for some good news, but at the same time, we got to be aware of what's happening. And I didn't mention earlier. I'm sure listeners are aware of it, but California has issued the largest stay-home order, I believe, in U.S. history for its 40 million residents. And, uh, you know, that's COVID-19 for us here in 2020, Delaney. Yeah. Where can listeners go to stay caught up on everything we're doing at Ag News Daily? Well, Mike, we are very actively tweeting, Facebooking, and Instagramming away during our social distancing here. You can find us at Ag News Daily on all three platforms, as well as connect with our sister network, our mother network, if you will, at Global Ag Network. Check out all the great podcasts and content we've got on there as well if you head to globalagnetwork.com. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.